Hello, hello. We are back. This is Stephen Hussey and George Taylor coming at you with a new name for the podcast. New decade, new name. Uh, we are now called the Speaking Generally podcast, George. Ooh, that's nice. Uh, and that is because we are two very unapologetic generalists in it's, our taste. It's a sort of like midlife crisis in the podcast. Rebrand, die job. <laughs> a desperate rebrand. Hail Mary pitch. Um, we thought it'd be easier for newcomers to understand quickly what we're about. And, uh, no what, one cares who Stephen George are, do they really? No, that, that, on iTunes that doesn't really play if people don't know who they are. So... Um, yeah, we are we are two people who like to read very widely. Obviously, we talk a lot about books, but we talk about many things: economics, philosophy, travel, lifestyle, art, and uh, we oh. want the podcast to reflect our eclectic tastes. Reflect my complete lack of expertise, Steve. Uh, yeah. Okay. Some would say it means there's no depth. Um, six six out of ten across the board. But you know, the polymath is back. And that's what we... You've got to aspire to something in life. And that's what our lofty ambition would be, even if even if we'll settle for generalist. Good value on a pub quiz, though. G- great value. Always go for a generalist on a pub quiz. Um, you don't want someone who only knows sports or music. Although both those rounds will come up. They will come up. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, so speaking generally, we're here. And today we are actually going to share with you an episode we recorded a while ago. <laughs> About six months ago. <laughs> Several months ago, we didn't release an episode, uh, not for any particular reason, uh, because we got caught up in our travel. So uh, we wanted to make sure we put this one out and feed it to your lovely ears so you don't miss a single drop. It's another one of those bloody book ones, Steve. It's a bloody book one. Um, we did one on our favourite adaptations of movies that were originally books um did we say the bad ones as well we said we said some stinkers some stinkers as well so um yeah we're talking about our favorite films based on books and we're gonna dive into that right now and join the two boys hello these days when you see a book storm the bestseller list you may as well set your watch because guess who's going to come a-calling? It's those fat cats from Hollywood who smell book sales and in an age of ever-increasing reliance on IPs and intellectual property, which is what IP stands for, um, and proven track record best-selling content, they're going to ask themselves, hey, wouldn't this book work well up on the big screen? And wouldn't we sell a buttload of tickets if all the people who bought this book also came to the film of it? So, adaptation is a very popular idea. Everyone's always looking for something to transfer from page to screen. And me and George like both mediums, and yet we agree the history of adaptation is, let's say, a mixed bag. So, Like some of your introductions. Like some of my introductions, which are done somewhat on the fly. Well, what... The benefit of uh, film is is that they spend time in the editing room. You know, they cut cut some of the deadwood out. Uh, um, I think people might not have heard the 
12 or 13 attempts at full starts at an introduction you did there but may I just say it could be because we're lying on the floor as we record this podcast yeah recumbent it's luxuriating late. in the carpet it's late we had a curry <laughs> um, we're sort of having a little night together pre-podcast try, curry getting some podcasts done and uh, it's getting a little late but we thought turns out a big heavy curry is not great for the productivity well <laughs> you'd be surprised I, no I think Nepalese food gets the juices going <laughs> Um, so adaptation uh, I think this is a meaty one we want to meaty and frothy we want to just talk about some of our favourite uh, book to screen adaptations some of the ones that work why they work why they sometimes fail appallingly um, what the pluses and minuses of adapting book to screen and uh, we'll and talk we, about... Can we just have a minute for the opposite as well, the old uh, the screen-to-book? The screen-to-book? <laughs> you know, well, the, old, I mean, the yeah. novelisation of the film. I yeah. used to read a lot of those. When I was that... younger, I used to fly through those. Yeah, well, that's interesting because the, the, that way round is usually seen as a horribly trashy genre in every way. Absolutely. It's weird that has no prestige of adapting a film into a book, but happens much more than you'd think. Well, I guess you're just writing down the dialogue and then describing the scenes. Yeah. It's almost like, um, yeah, like you know, audio guides for the visually impaired. It, yeah, it's just saying bit... things that happened in yeah. the film. Remember that bit? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, adaptation, George. What would you think of it as a concept? It, throughout the ages, adaptation's not especially new. Many great operas were based on things like classic uh, Greek plays or classic Shakespeare. There's been op- operas, uh, you know, and they're adapted from uh, great war, poems like <laughs> great poems like Don Giovanni and things. Uh, yeah, ones adapted from great wars, royal. <laughs> some of the great wars, some of the great <laughs> royal families. Uh, there's been operas of Hamlet. There's been operas of Macbeth. There's been operas of stories from Sophocles, Ovid, all the greats, all sorts. Um, um, I yeah. am, I'm certainly, certainly a fan of of people giving it a good go. I would say um, when it's a clear and upsetting cash grab, that's usually quite obvious. Yeah. That can, that can be a shame. Like so, Mozart's John Don Giovanni. <laughs> so just, you can Shameless. hear the cash register ringing, can't you? Um, Abduction from the Seraglio. <laughs> um, I think, I think we're going to have quite different lists because okay. like often we come about these in slightly different different ways we're not quite on the same page but absolutely we'll see we'll see what happens um yeah let's uh let's fire a few off we'll just we'll just pick some of our favorites maybe some of our least favorites and some some in the middle yeah and i think it'll be interesting to talk about some that are completely divergent in terms of quality in terms of some terrible books that can make amazing films and vice versa Mm -hmm. um i'm gonna start off with one that i think uh, tr- oh, I think does elevate its source material from something that is an interesting psychological sci-fi book into something I think is a wonderful piece of art. And that's Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Uh, adapted from the Philip K. Dick sci-fi novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And have you read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I have not read it. It's, vi- it's, it's good. It's a it's a kind of it is in the pantheon of sort of sci-fi classics um most people go there when they're reading classic sci-fi it's you know it, like all philip k dick stuff it really explores like identity what it means to be human a lot of paranoia how would you know if 
you know, the people around you were replicants or not, or how would you know if you yourself were real or not? And it does have those themes in it, but it's a bit more, it's, it's a bit more pulpy. It feels like a, a little bit of a pulpy sci-fi novel and it's not as, I think it doesn't maybe reach as high artistically as Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And, and obviously the, I, I think it's not as literary, you know, and, and whereas like the film is clearly reaching for a status. It's not meant to be a, you go and have a, it's not like a popcorny go and watch a sci-fi film. Um, it, it tries to sort of say a lot. And I think both are great works, but I think that Blade Runner takes it a level above. I think Blade Runner is a real film classic, and especially Ridley Scott's final cut. There are many cuts of Blade Runner, but that one is the best. And, uh, and um, you know, I mean, the performances of like Rutger Hauer, Harrison Ford, you've got the amazing Vangelis soundtrack, uh, you've got the beautiful way it's shot and the strange world that Ridley Scott brings to life. But... Um, something about the way the plot is even slightly it, it's changed in a couple of significant ways um they're both ultimately fairly melancholy stories but i think ridley scott's has much more of the androids and much more fleshed out characters in terms of the way they question their existence and that struggle they have is much more profound in that whereas i think the novel focuses a bit more just on the main character it has less ambiguity, I think. And sci-fi is a genre that benefits from, if done well, it, it probably works better on screen because you just have more textures to express a kind of conceptual world, right? Music elevates it in a way that a novel doesn't have the opportunity to use music. The, vis- the visuals, when it's quite a prescriptive atmosphere that someone else's design your imagination might not be the best way to take you there. So having the kind of set design opportunity to to set the constraints of that world out, film often has advantages. Yeah, and and, and then you don't you can just do pure visual storytelling with film, right? And if you're trying to tell like get a feel for a future world, you have to do so much less description in some ways than novel. Yeah. And that's to some extent a benefit where you don't have to explain how this world works. Like there's not a lot of there's, there's like there was in the original cut voiceover and they took it all out but there's no sort of this is how the rules of the Blade Runner future in Los Angeles in 2070 or whatever it is I think it's 2040 or something but yeah it's like there doesn't have to be this codified explanation you just get a feel for how yeah. the future is um, and yeah it's just it still remains a very it doesn't look horribly dated when you watch Blade Runner it sort of still holds up visually very well to the point where the new one that was done by Denny Villeneuve actually just feels like visually continuous with the original. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's very solid. Interesting. Well, I, I will mention then a, a sci-fi one to kind of follow on. Not not one that I can really cite the specific examples of the adaptations, but more it's an interesting um, piece for how people have attempted it and probably haven't hit the nail on the head for how loved the source material is. And it's not a novel, it's a graphic novel, it's Watchmen. And how that has been adapted with a TV series and a film. And now there's a new, is it an HBO series or a Hulu series that's about to be made that has taken quite a big shift from the original source material. It's kind of using... Um, like future generations of the main characters but I'm just more interested in how something with such a specific visual aesthetic such a specific tone 
has not been able to uh, the the adaptations of it have not been able to pull that across. And you, I mean, I haven't actually read all of the original graphic novel. Is it just what there's like a what richness to it, or kind of? There's a a specific aesthetic, the kind of closed, uh, closed like grim negative, in similar to the um, Blade Runner world, like slightly futuristic, yeah, um, yeah cynical outlook, and uh, but quite a poppy visual style that's also film noir-y those kinds of things they don't seem to translate into the film adaptations of them and like i'm just interested in how people keep giving it a go right i uh, i'm on the like i don't re- i don't dislike the Zack snyder film the watchman one i think it's a bit baggy and a bit flawed like it's uh, it's it's definitely flawed but i did there's something about that film i do very much enjoy but I don't know how much of that is just owing to Alan Moore's source material I think there's things yeah I I don't know I think sometimes it's because that mix between something so it's very serious in tone but it's also got very fantastical things and sometimes on screen those things can be I don't know what's the word does it look too take reveling in its own self-importance yeah. in a way in a comic book it makes more sense for it to do mm-hmm. it whereas sometimes on the film it can be like this superhero film's trying really hard to be grim and yeah. dark and sometimes maybe that just looks a bit silly on silly on possibly screen, yeah maybe um although chris nolan does it well with the dark knight but even some people think those can converge a uh, border on self-seriousness yeah. um yeah it's it's just taking something that is a flashy men in costume, men and women in costumes doing superhero stuff and like, yeah, maybe on film it or it's like with any superhero film, right? They have to do something to make it seem a bit less cartoonish and mm-hmm. ridiculous. Whereas in a comic, you just take it for what it is. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's almost, um, for me, that one's an interesting example of almost hubris, right? Like people taking on, it's such a fated and lauded graphic novel. Yeah. That you're often not going to satisfy the original fan base but it's got such a quirky aesthetic that if you're not already interested in that graphic novel, I don't think it's a great um, a visual uh, palette for drawing in new people right. because it, it looks kind of deliberately a bit hokey. The costumes look a bit naff for the superheroes and that kind of thing. So I don't think it's going to win over a new audience, yeah. but I also think it will alienate the original audience. So that if if an adaption got it perfect it would do incredibly well but i think it's almost um almost doomed to fail because of those like prerequisites yeah and there's so much of it is like a satire of yeah superhero stuff and some people might go in thinking this is a superhero film yeah and it's quite a lot of meant to be a lot of ironic deconstructing so it's, it's, myth. it is brave taking it on it looks like the new adaptation of it is more taking the source material and moving it into the future and creating a new story so they're slightly moving away and that might be a way to make it work but um interesting to see what happens there um yeah um you want me to do one yeah next up please um so one i just think is pitch perfect all round. um probably uh, I mean, a, a great novel, but probably one that actually lifts it is uh, the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men. Very nice. The adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel of the same name. Which was originally written as a screenplay. Uh, yes. And, the you know, the No Country for Old Men, about a guy stumbles on a drug deal gone wrong, 
uh, decides to take the money and run, so to speak, and spends a lot of it trying to outrun a hitman who is uh, after to collect the money. And, uh, you know, there's a policeman played by Tommy Lee Jones who's going through his own crisis of ageing and, you know, finding the world full of violence and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just a really... I, I I mean, the novel's much quite punchy for Cormac McCarthy stuff. It's very action-filled. It's a very sort of tense novel, but... Um, and Cormac McCarthy's an incredible writer, but the Coen Brothers film, I think, is exceptionally good, and I think it it just lifts it... Like, it, I, yeah, I think it's one of the best films released since, like, the year 2000. Um, I'd put it up there. Uh, and um, probably, may, you know, the top three of their work. So, yeah, I just, I just think it takes it one notch above. Whereas on the Cormac McCarthy novels, I think it just sits somewhere firmly in the middle of his novels yeah. he's probably got three or four that are better more than that I probably more yeah. yeah it's, it's in the it's, bottom half of yeah. his body of work um and he's you know got a fantastic body of work but I, I just think they made it into something that was uh really stand out the I, I don't know exactly what it is it's hard for me to actually pinpoint because it does follow the novel pretty faithfully so it's not one of those ones where oh they made they did something completely different with it and changed it all which made it better but um, I think they just found the the essence of it, its themes in such a way, like themes of like chance and fate and making, you know, the wrong moral choice and if you're kind of doomed to the consequences of that and kind of, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, trying to outrun your own fate and uh, it just all culminates... Uh, and, and Javier Bardem may be one of the best on-screen villains ever in it, uh, doing the... Di- Apparently, when he was asked to do that, he I think he won an Oscar for that part. Yeah. Or, and uh, he was... Uh, when they wanted to hire him for that part, he said, uh, he said like, I don't speak English very well. Uh, I hate violence and guns. And, like, basically gave these three reasons. He was just like, I don't know if I want to do this. And mm. they were like, yeah, that's why we think you're perfect, like... Yeah, um, yeah, and thank God he did. Um, he, uh, yeah. What do you What do you say about that film? Great film, S- second best film of that year. Go on. Are you going to say There Will Be Blood was better? Uh, yeah. I read Roger Ebert thinks that No Country pips out There Will Be Blood, but different opinion, different Dif- critics, different, different opinions. Critics, yeah, exactly. Uh, both um, great films. Quite, quite strangely, like, interestingly similar films in ways of that year. Set in the desert. <laughs> Set in the desert. Uh, Adapted men, from books, men causing men in trouble. Hats. Yeah. Uh, very, very, yeah, very male-centric uh, films. and Like, there's barely a woman in There Will Be Blood. Yeah. No Country Old Men has Llewellyn's wife, but she's like a minor part. A very, like, Cormac McCarthy doesn't write a lot of women. Yeah. No, uh, he does not. But yeah, um, lovely stuff. Uh, I will go for then. I'll go for a for an adaptation in a novel replete with women, Steve. I would say it's the greatest, hmm, the greatest British television series possibly of all time. Definitely the greatest period drama of all time. Um, Monty Python, Holy Grail. 
Nailed it. <laughs> Adapted from the Bible. No, no, no. No, let's be serious, Steve. I'm, of course, talking about Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. Oh. Uh, and the British adaptation that was, uh, what, 13 episode, 10 to 13 episode series um, with the cream of British acting talent from the very early 80s. Jeremy Irons, mm. um, Laurence Olivier, Gilgood. Oh, God. <sighs> Star-studded. Um, it's star-studded. Uh, and then It's a super band. Of, of sort of slightly <laughs> camp ride period <laughs> period actors and actresses. But, um, yeah, just absolutely magnificent. Claire Bloom um, is phenomenal as Lady Marchmain. Uh, it's it's just beautiful. The, the war novel is probably my favourite of the Evelyn War novels. I've, I've read a lot of them now, and it just stands up as... A beautiful piece of writing that encompasses aesthetics, Catholic guilt, the role of class, all these many, many things. It's one of the great Oxford novels, which has a kind of personal place in mine and probably your hearts for that reason. Uh, Just it's just a beautiful piece of writing, but the 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 visuals that the TV series manages to capture, it it's got a really languid style. It's something that really suits having a voiceover in a way that um, you said they'd maybe stripped out of some very different thing in um, Blade Runner. Right. Very different pieces of work, but like the, the, the narration that is taken from the novel and applied into the TV series just really adds to the wistfulness of it and the harking back to a a life lived earlier and how things change and beautifully acted, beautifully directed by maybe several directors i'm not 100 percent sure um yeah phenomenal it's it's the best british television series ever made i think i'd stick my neck out and say that and almost all of it shot on location in either oxford or venice or the incredible house that that they use um or the houses that they use across the piece but yeah a, a wonderful adaptation that revels in the advantages of cinema yeah, you've um, well, you've caught me out there because I haven't seen that series, but I very uh, much hurry out. Book. Yeah, um, hurry out and guess it. My parents love that series, though. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, I adored the book when I first read it. I haven't read the book for a long time. So it's an interesting thing as well because it's not a super long novel, right? Maybe no. two hundred and fifty pages, and it's yeah, maybe thirteen hours of television. So they wow. with without it dragging at all. Yeah. Um, there was a recent film of it as well, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, it's supposed to be it, diabolical. It, it wasn't very. It wasn't great. It was quite forgettable. But yeah, I remember that novel made a strong impression on me. Kind of lasted a long time. Um, very beautiful. I think Evelyn War, and that's hard because because so much of Evelyn War, the joy is in the prose as well. So to put that on screen and do it well, is, I think that's is where interesting the, to me. The voiceover comes into it. Yeah, in quite a nice way because you get some right, direct right. prose. Well, this is the thing. Actually, one thing to. To more get on the philosophical side of adaptation, George. Um, yeah, I, I think that one of the issues with something like a beloved novel like that is there's always, again, as I'm saying, it's surprising that's done well because something like a novel like that, you're not the 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 plot of that is actually good, but it's not so much what keeps you going. And if you're reading The Great Gatsby. You know, there's so much of it is driven by the Nick Carraway narrator, the voice, F. Scott Fitzgerald's writing, the description you're getting, the beautiful passages in, like, you know, 
The Great Gatsby has one of the most memorable openings and endings ever in terms of prose. And yeah, it's kind of like, and I, and I think that's why certain things on screen tend to disappoint people when they love a novel particularly because it's, I don't know, in some ways it's very hard to recapture. The thing you're loving is a narrative voice that you're identifying with, enjoying the rhythm and style of. And visually, that's such a completely different medium that you almost, almost a film director has to decide they're not trying to directly translate everything you've got off the page. They almost have to, I don't know, a lot of like the great adaptations, right, can almost uh, wildly make their own voice with it. Like, say, like a Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick adapted novels for his entire filmography nearly most of the people whose novels he adapted were fairly angry at how different yeah. his films were, but people love Stanley Kubrick films. But And it's almost like he took a very proactive decision to... It's not... I'm not trying to translate the novel. I've taken things I like out of this, and I'm deciding what themes of it matter to me, how I want to tell it, but I'm taking the bones of the story and then doing my own version of it yeah. but um well, yeah what do you yeah well what's so, really interesting there is it depends on how the novel is written right if it's uh third person or kind of just descriptive that's almost setting up what the the cameraman or director chooses to do but if it's a first person piece of narration you have that problem of it could be a you know 20 page interior monologue about how something looks in a piece of film that's a three second pan of a camera so adapting long stretches of prose if it's from an interior monologue means you have to use something like a voiceover narration or adapt dialogue to fit in something that was otherwise internalised. And for me, one that's maybe a slightly like frothy but really personal to me example of this is the, uh, I think, excellent and done as well as they possibly could be done, Fry and Laurie, Jeeves and Worcester adaptations right. from the P.G. Woodhouse yeah. novels. So like maybe the best comic novels written in the English language and most of their humour really derives from the... It's the narration. The internal narration from the Bertie character and how he sees the world and his funny little turns of phrase and the way he uses language. In the televised adaptations, they do apply a lot of that into dialogue, which gets a lot of it on screen, so a lot of it's not missed out, but just heaps of what makes those books great falls at the wayside. But what was really interesting is Friar Laurie kind of said they were offered to do it and they thought these these books are kind of unfilmable because yeah. they're so great like that but they said well if anyone's going to do it we are and we're going to try and like be the custodians of it and do it as well as possible so that thing about kind of the hubris of adapting things it's almost like they've kind of not taken one for the team but they've thought if this is so hard to do we're at least going to try and give it our best right, go you know right. um but yeah the like you say the nick carraway descriptions or whatever it is you you lose so much of the prose with yeah a flick of a obviously a camera can impart so much so quickly that the richness of of um, prose just falls away so a director has to make some very important decisions as to what's key to why people like a text right yeah um and i find that a lot of them some of them do fail adaptations when they too it's like when they try too slavishly to copy dialogue or things from the book, sometimes it sounds awkward and it doesn't. 
it doesn't play as well because it's I don't know something about the the obsession with fidelity to every scene and you know some people are like this with like say someone's adapting a YA like one of these young adult novels like a Hunger Games and people are like oh that's exactly what happened but sometimes it's like well something's in a book sound corny in a film mm-hmm. and they you know or they sound cheesy or they look dumb and it's just I find apparently there's a, f- a thing more and more where lots of big selling authors now like I think E.L. James who did the Fifty Shades series uh, not an acclaimed set of novels <laughs> critically but a higher selling but she she apparently was extremely controlling over exactly how the films had to be done and like they said this is quite a new thing where lots of authors now are getting very sort of like I want to call all these shots of Hollywood, but it, you know, the people who tried to write the script for Fifty Shades said it was a real problem because they, it's almost like they wanted to use the novel as clay to maybe take it in a more interesting direction, but they were so bound by fidelity to novel, which many see as trashy, hokey, whatever. Hmm. So then it's like the screen thing is going to be the same exact same thing you got, yeah. And people just go because otherwise they're like, well, fans are just going to complain that moment from the book didn't happen exactly on screen as yeah. I read. And it's like, I don't know, if I go to see some novel adapted, I don't, I don't know if I want to go and see just a, a paint-by-numbers no. thing of this is what happened in the book. But interestingly, though, that to me is why I say um, No Country for Old Men worked because there isn't that much need, you know, you can stick very true to that novel because it is almost written like it is written for film. It's very cinematically written. Yeah. Or... Um, designed to appear cinematic rather than having cinematic scope whereas the other adaptations of McCarthy novels uh, say All the Pretty Horses did not work well because it's you know very low on dialogue it's just beautiful prose describing scenes whereas The Road and No Country for Old Men are short terse bits of dialogue yeah. stop start they work a lot easier yeah. because being true to those books isn't much of a leap for a director to make right right um but yes, if being true to a, a text that is already badly written is kind of a prerequisite of the author, then you do you're on a hiding to nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whose turns it? Mm, I think I think we've just kind of we're freewheeling now, aren't we? Freewheeling. Um, ones that I, I keep th- catching myself saying kind of, and it's really annoying me. <laughs> but I can't stop. <laughs> Um, well, we've talked about my verbal tics, so I can't pull you up on those. Contagious. Um, uh, other ones I think are very strong. I, I mean, actually, I think to stay on Stanley Kubrick, because, you know, he, he is a serial adapter. Um, and I, I don't know if there, apart from maybe some of the early ones, I don't know if there's an actual original Stanley Kubrick script that isn't based on a book. I don't know if Eyes Wide Shut is. I would think that might be based on... Eyes Wide Shut's based on Traum Novelle, right. which is an, uh, a novel, a novella by an Austrian writer whose name I'll think of as we go. Right, and and Clockwork Orange, obviously, based on Anthony Burgess. It's The book, Killing. The Shining. Is The um, Killing a, a, I don't know if The Killing an original is. script, I think. I um, think that's an original script. Doctor Strangelove is based on a book. Um, so, yeah, that, and, and 2001, he, they, there was a book by R.C. Clarke that... That I think they co-worked on. Um, so yeah, but I, I think my favourite Stanley Kubrick film is Barry Lyndon. Now, I actually have not read the source material of uh, Barry Lyndon, which is a novel called The Luck of Barry Lyndon by Thackeray, who wrote Vanity Fair. But um, 
it's a very lesser known seem to be a sort of it's it's meant to be like decent in parts um not one of Thackeray's best but not worst like kind of decent novel 19th century but uh you know Barry Lyndon is is like pure cinematic gold uh, as far as I'm concerned but I can't really comment on the source material but what that on that note what I want to talk about is things that are adapted which the source material is extremely unknown or not really reputed at all and the ones that I instantly thought about were some absolute stone-cold cinematic classics Spielberg Jurassic Park and Jaws both based on novels I mean my, Jurassic uh, not Park's like, a big seller right it's the, the Michael Crichton novel the book was a big seller but but it's not one that people people don't revere or love no, maybe or not in the same. I mean, Crichton knocked uh, so many Crichton, knocked Crichton books were turned into. He wrote ER, right? Yeah, um, um, but I, th- I don't know that that was a novel. But um, Andromeda Strain. Yeah, he's written a lot. It's just it's it's a film that completely in every way dwarfed yeah. the source material. No one that you don't see the Jurassic Park book in a no in a don't. in in the, in the way you might see 1984 or whatever. You know, Fight Club would still be in bookshops, but mm-hmm. I've never seen Jurassic Park or Jaws in any bookshop ever. I don't. Think. I've read Jaws. You've read Jaws, yeah, and Pete, it is called Jaws the original. Yeah, but Peter Benchley, right? Um, uh, yeah, Unless they so, changed, because the cover of the version of the novel I have is exactly the same as the film poster. Right. So I don't know if after the success of the film he changed it from a title called like The Big Shark or something. <laughs> right. I don't know. Because that's um yeah that's interesting. The other one, the other very strange one for a long time I didn't know was adapted at all, but was Die Hard. I didn't. Die know Hard that. is adapted from a book that okay. was not particularly popular. Right. I think is not particularly good, but um, yeah, apparently Die Hard is based on a book. Um, and uh, yeah that's interesting like why do some you know some books that were obviously had a moment of being popular enough to film or interesting enough to film just you don't there's no bookshop table where they, those are even shown at all like how did they just disappear from the literary mm. scene completely um, despite the Jurassic, Jurassic Park so ubiquitous name you'd think Jurassic World's out you'd think they just punt the Jurassic Park yeah. novel for a bit and be like, you love that. Yeah, they don't play the tie-in. They don't, they don't no. play the tie-in at all, um, which I just I just find I wonder why that is. Maybe just the books are unfashionable or not as in, I don't know, the, the film dwarfs them so is, vastly. Is AI based on a novel? Uh, no, AI was a, uh, Kubrick and Spielberg. Oh, no, sorry. It was based on... Uh, Loosely based on a Philip K. Dick short story called Super Toys Last All Summer Long. Yeah, okay, uh, yes. Yeah. and uh, The auth- the Eyes Wide Shut book is by Arthur Sch- Schnitzler, Schitzler, something like that. It's called Dream Story in English. Hmm. Traum Novelle in Austrian. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Kubrick. Not the di- oh, the Die Hard book. <laughs> the original <laughs> book is called... Is that right? It's called Nothing Lasts Forever. There you go. Uh... A thriller novel. One of the great Christmas novels. A great Christmas novel. I wonder if that's set at Christmas too. Um, what a strange addition to make, you know, if you're adapting a novel and think, oh, we'll set it at Christmas. It's got to be set at Christmas. Yeah. Um, um, shall I come back at you with another? Yeah. Another one? Um, well, another one. This is more another another example of how it's not worked and how there's another one coming soon that might work. And you mentioned the kind of done it again I said kind of again 
Stop me, Steve. <laughs> um, Give you a firm slap. Yeah. The young, the young adult space. It is the the Philip Pullman Golden Compass Northern Lights trilogy, which is a to me a magnificent group of young adult or just great great books for young people, but older people as well. Um, and I was kind. Of, oh, I did it again. <laughs> Good lord! Uh, it occupied a similar space to the Harry Potter books in terms of uh, yeah age of readership, period of when it was released, but more adult in its ambitions um, and the film adaptation that came out in the noughties just did not do what it should have done It they only made one and yeah. there's three in the trilogy, it was Nicole Kidman was in it, Daniel Craig Daniel Craig. So, so big hitters and it did not did not latch on at all like it, it could have done. Yeah and it was around that time when they were obviously seeing a fant- well they were seeing a, a YA boom with Harry Potter and yeah. film adaptations of those, so I think they probably pre-Hunger thought, Games. So yeah, they probably there was thought they had a winner on their hands. Yeah, there. and it, it's I so haven't visually actually appealing. read or seen any. I know okay. nothing of the Northern Ma- magnificent books with um, really, yeah, really high level ambition. It's a battle between a theocratic state and a kind of rampant atheist in a very basic way, but it's also about um, uh, there's in terms of cinematic adaptation there's a a kind of a physical manifestation of the soul that everyone has it's a small animal called a demon who sort of sits on your shoulder and is is around you and you'd think that would translate so well on screen and there's uh, anthropomorphic military polar bears that kind of fight each other I said kind of again oh good lord Ah! Um, so many opportunities for it to 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 work really well on screen and it just did not uh, get done as it could have done but they've readapted it on the BBC I think and it is coming out with James McAvoy and Lin Manuel Miranda mm. and um, the actress who's in the affair. Okay. Um, is Lin Manuel Miranda writing songs for it? If he's rapping, I'll be furious. Um, <laughs> he's playing a character that in the first film was, I think, played by that Sam, the old guy with the big moustache who's in um, Big Lebowski. So he's, oh. you know, the old, like, Texan Sarsaparilla yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, somehow, Man. Yeah, somehow Lin-Manuel Miranda's got that part. He's about Wonderful. 38. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm really intrigued to see how that adaptation pans out maybe it will work better on the tv format did you it's hate the original adaptation i think i sat through half of it without being super interested and right. didn't follow on but the fact that they didn't get the second and third films out of it is is really telling right because mm. it could be a huge cash cow um interesting well let's go for another let's go for another failed one maybe not monetarily but in my eyes artistically mm-hmm. um the director Tim Burton. Oh no, what's he gone on? He's made a, a plethora of films, um, very, very in quality. Probably the one of the directors whose films you can equally love some and absolutely hate the others. Um, and I really hate his Alice in Wonderland. Okay, um, not seen it. I don't know of another proper adaptation, apart from the Disney cartoon, which actually has a lot of charm to it. It's a bit dated, but... Um, yeah, the Tim Burton adaptation of that, it was one that people were really getting excited about. I think it was like, 
you know, a time when Johnny Depp had a bit more cachet than he does now. <laughs> sure. Um, and people were just like, Tim Burton, Alice in Wonderland, it's a marriage made in heaven, it's surrealist, it's strange, it's a little bit scary. Great. And uh, it's the weirdest... You haven't seen it? No. It's so... First of all, it's sort of a weird... It's not even a proper adaptation. It sort of becomes... It sort of makes itself a kind of sequel to Alice in Wonderland because she's older. But not Alice through the looking glass. No, but she's like... It's like, oh, she's older. She goes back in and it's sort of like... She sort of ends up doing a lot of the same things from the original. So it's kind of a bit of a retread anyway through the same characters and things. I think it mixes some of the different Alice stories, but it's just, yeah, so that's strange anyway. And it's just um, pretty, pretty boring. And it becomes, instead of all the charm and weirdness of the original novel, it kind of devolves into sort of quite a, quite a rote act three of like, we've got to fight big bad now mm. and do blah, 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 which is like not what Alice in Wonderland is like at all. And it's like, now we've got to do the big fighting of the monster and CGI battle sort of thing. Um, just, just charmless and forgettable. Well, so, um, so he he also did the his adaptation of Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Yes, and I think there's there's something very interesting about a director with such a specific aesthetic taking source material that does not share their aesthetic and then putting it through their prism or you know yeah. Tim Burton something. Yeah, yeah. It it shifts from being a Roald Dahl story or a Lewis Carroll story. Yeah, well, Tim Burton, I think is is more, I think, gothic more, right? Yeah. And those are a bit more quirky and, and comedic and... I mean, there's obviously dark elements to Roald Dahl. Yeah, I mean, His yeah. adult stuff is super dark. Yeah, but I don't, gothic, I don't think but... Tim Burton does comedic stuff very well. No. And I think when too much of that is thrown in, I, I think his tone is just so morbid sometimes and ghoulish that it doesn't really, like... The comedy doesn't play very well. But say with Kubrick, he's someone... You, you know you're watching a Kubrick film, but they're all very differently aesthetic. Different, they all they all have very different aesthetics. Whereas if Tim Burton made the full body of Kubrick films, they would all have everyone knows a quirky big haired weirdo. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's right. Some outcast who has issues with his dad, estranged from yeah. his parents. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, yeah. Well, let's talk about Willy Wonka then, because probably the Gene Wilder Charlie in the Chocolate Factory is a the, wonderful, a great adaptation. Yeah, yeah, a wonderful adaptation. Um, Kind of to the point that it becomes a musical as well. Yeah. Um, one the rare, we'll add songs to it and make this better. Yeah. Um, some would argue done by The Lion King versus Hamlet on the great adaptation. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, I prefer Hamlet, but I, I, like, I love both. Um, to his own. Hamlet just about pips it for me. Yeah. Um, but a great adaptation. Um, and, and everyone doesn't kill each other in the end of The Lion King. Mm. Um yeah, Charlie and Chuck Factory is wonderful, and then Tim Burton did it, and it's sort of a creepy, strange Johnny Depp-looking ghost-faced and weird. Um, yeah. And his Oompa Loompas, the song's not as good. Okay, I've no. not seen it. Not it's seen a the bloody Burton. mess, George. Um, uh, other ones, Cat in the Hat. Not so Burton great. as well? No, no, no. no Who did Cat in the Hat? Who the hell knows? But the film was a travesty. I mean... It's a it's a it's a famous it's a famously uh dis Is this Jim Carrey? Film. No, it was Mike Myers. Myers, yeah, got you. Um there's there's some moments in it that are sort of so bad it's funny bits where Mike Myers just hamming it up and being stupid. He's the cat. Yeah. 
there's just like a couple of lines where I'm like, it's just very funny. But the whole film is is um, it's one of those ones where the book is so short, <laughs> and the book is a children's book that's about fifteen lines, twenty dialogue. pages, yeah. and they go, let's expand a whole universe to an hour and a half of this. Mm. And it, and the film looks and plays like it's like a surrealist nightmare, <laughs> like it's so strange looking so bizarre in an unsettling uncomfortable way um yeah it's uh, it's deeply hated but you know i'm glad films like that exist i mean they have to <laughs> it's not like it made 500 million and it's terrible right. i don't think it did very well no okay that's somewhat that, that's some saving grace um I will go for something very different to Cass in the Hat if I could pop another forward. It's more the body of work of a director-writer pairing or producer-director pairing, I suppose. It's the the Merchant Ivory films. Merchant Ivory films? I don't know how, how many of those you've seen. I've been on a bit of a, a drive to watch watch some of them, but um, per, generally period adaptations of period novels... Um, so James Ivory is the director, um, and Howard's End, uh, Room of the View, Remains of the Day, mm-hmm. they're probably the peak Merchant Ivory films, and more recently, uh, James Ivory direct, no, not directed, but wrote Call Me By or adapted Call Me By Your Name. Oh, so lovely film. Kind of again, lang. I said it. Again. I'm fuming. I'm so sorry. I hate myself. Uh, <laughs> Um, I'm just glad it's not me. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, been, I'd be embarrassed. Oh, I certainly am. Languid, beautiful period dramas, wonderful costumes, wonderful sets. They elevate or at least do as much justice as possible to orig- already really beautiful novels. It remains of the days, a beautiful book. Absolutely the best Ishiguro novel. Mm. Uh, a sh- I don't want to say shockingly overrated author, but um, a, a very good author, but I don't know how he won the Nobel Prize. We've mentioned this before. Yeah. It's certainly his best book, but therefore the book most demanding or most deserving of a, a lovely film adaptation. Um, certainly better than Never Let Me Go as both a book and film adaptation. This is really beautiful. Uh, and um, Howard's End also really beautiful. I mean, I think if Cormac McCarthy's alive giving nearly anyone else the Nobel Prize is a bit scandalous in my opinion Um, Um, but but yeah yeah seek out if you've not seen them and you're into some British country house porn and not not in a smutty way in a I mean they've exploited how lovely the house looks kind of way Um, seek out some Merchant Ivory films they're wonderful if you want some classic butler butler etiquette butler action yeah um uh I'll go for some some other honourable mentions of good adaptations. Obviously, Train Spotting. Yeah. Good novel, good film. Yeah. Both, both very strong. Uh, American Psycho. I think the book's slightly better, but the film's yeah. pretty uh, memorable. Pretty uh, great film. Great film. The book does more of the washing over you and desensitising you. The film's like more. The, the book's more shocking. The book's yeah. much more shocking actually. The, yeah. the film, the film for the reputation it has actually doesn't do some of the. Some of the grotesque acts that happen in the book are, uh, have a visceral shock because of how suddenly they happen, and I think that is powerful when you read it. But the book does also have twenty-page 
bits where they just talk about the ties people are wearing and the suits yeah. and you have to kind of get used to that. But that is the point. But that right? is the point, yeah. yeah. Um, the Exorcist, I didn't know was adapted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love The Exorcist. I have no idea what the book's like. Um, Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. That's a very good film. Good book. Um, what about ones we think should be adapted that haven't been? Do you have any of those? I've got a couple. Well, don't say, because someone might do it before you get to. <laughs> yeah. you, need to you need to option them. Right. Well, so, well, a couple of these are actually sort of development hell okay. um, novels. Um, one is famously one of the most attempted to be adapted but never adapted novels is Confederacy of Dunces. Stephen Fry had the rights to it, didn't he? Stephen Fry had the right. Confederacy of Dunces, if you don't know, is a novel that was written. It was one of the only novels written by a guy called John Kennedy Toole who, uh, who committed suicide at about age 23. And he wrote this incredible novel. Was he that young? Yeah, he was really young, and his mum tried to get it published after he died, and did, but he sort of despairingly uh, committed suicide um, at the tender age of 23, so obviously he had problems, but he was ama- he wrote this amazing book. Posthumous Pulitzer Prize winner. Right, is yeah. he really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, and it's an exceptional novel, it's, a, it's, a, it's funny, it's about this very overweight guy called Ignatius Riley, who's very pretentious sort of scholarly, sort of, um, but entitled and also really lazy at the same time. And it's kind of about his, uh, his sort of silly adventures, really. Isn't around it? New Orleans. Yeah, around yeah. New Orleans. Um, but uh, it's been, I think at one point, John, John Candy, Candy was touted to play really him. Suits um, the role. Basically every large actor in Hollywood, <laughs> I think Belushi at some point, every uh, portly actor was touted to play him. Probably Griffiths at some Griffiths, point. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, and it's never gotten made, and it's been passed around many times. Um, another one, probably un- I think probably unfilmable at, as the way in a novel is, um, is Blood Meridian. But yeah. Ridley Scott has expressed a lot of interest, um, and so have a couple of other directors. But it's it, Blood Meridian is like an extremely dark um, horror. Well. Partly like Western horror. Yeah, yeah, a gothic Western horror of of a sort of despicably violent gang in America in what time? Sort of eighteen forties sort of thing. Who, yeah, just go on a rampage of of murder and killing. The main, the main kind of. I said it again. Oh God! Oh God! Oh God! The main character is a seven foot hairless. Albino monk. Albino man. So who speaks all languages is this strange who's figure. Playing him? There's this strange figure known as the judge who is like. I mean, maybe mystical. that could have been John Candy. Yeah. <laughs> some enormous mystical. Is he bald? Did you yeah, say? Hairless. Yeah. Hairless, uh, sort of Gnostic monk figure. Fiddler. Um, yeah, and it and and the novel is so is grotesquely violent in parts, and I just think I don't know what, and also lots of the plot is just next act of horror and violence next act mm. it's not it's not got this arc of a hero's journey or something that's Certainly particularly not. filmable so I don't I can't see that ever actually properly make it to screen um, and of course Marcel Proust's A la Rechamp de Perdue a six volume novel of a man's own inner monologue and in life probably not going to be ever made probably not shouldn't be made into a film and never will be no, probably rightly so will. The man eating. <laughs> That's okay. Is there an, 
One thing I think is ripe for a modern adaptation is an updated, completely change the the time period Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. That's my pitch. The film, the Count of Monte Cristo film, is quite good. Is it like a black and white? It's quite old though. Isn't no, it? no, the uh, maybe early nineties. It's Guy Pearce is the Count, and ooh, I think of... a very young Henry Cavill is in it. Oh, and well, it's, I don't it's know a that. very enjoyable film. Well, I think they should do a modern one. Okay, I think a modern Count of Monte Cristo. So you Cristo can understand it. It's one. <laughs> it's one of the great revenge stories ever it's full of drama great characters I think you could just I think Stephen Fry actually did a modern the adaptation yeah, it the no, it's called The Stars Tennis Oh The Balls. Stars Tennis he did Balls. a novel that was a bit like that yeah. but I think you could do a filmed version that's like some kind of modern revenge novel yeah we'll seek out the Guy Pierce one I found that very enjoyable okay um, got anything you would like to film from the books you've read I haven't I haven't thought about it uh no. no. You've, you've put me on the spot. I mean, you could listen to me scrolling through my my spreadsheet. Please. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got one that was diabolical that I don't think many people will have seen and I would encourage you to not watch it. Um, <laughs> because it's just... I don't know who would think, let's make a film of that. It's it's called The Bookshop by Penelope Penelope Fitzgerald. Great novelist, right. Don't know. written some lovely books, very subtle, subtle books, mood pieces, short novels um, about people in changing circumstances or in a certain cultural milieu for a, a short, engaging period of time. Not something you think, oh, this needs to be on the screen. And it was... It was her novel, The Bookshop, which is about as thrilling as the title sounds, was adapted into a film that I watched last year, and it was painfully bad. Just boring, badly acted, and pointless. There was no... no, Nothing at stake, nothing of consequence, nothing happened. And it it was an hour and a half of my life I'll never get back. So seek that out <laughs> on Amazon Prime, all good streaming services. I think it was on Netflix. <laughs> um, uh, drivel, it wow. was. Wow. I mean, Bill Nye's in it. Um, oh, I'm laughing already. <laughs> he, who doesn't want that? He's a character who doesn't go out because he reads a lot. Right. And the woman running the new bookshop in town only goes and publishes Lolita and everyone gets very excited because it's he, a bit racy. Does he go... Dear, I'm trying to read a bloody book. That's pretty much the plot. <laughs> While he's clicking his arthritic fingers, bless him. Um, well, before we go, hmm. what do you... One of the most obvious book adaptations, what do you think of Fight Club? What do I think of Fight Club? I've not seen it since I was a teenage boy. Oh, wow. And I feel like it's it's a film for teenage boys. Um, I've not f- read the book. I think it's a film that still has held up, but I think it's it's definitely one that feels better when you're younger. A bit. I, I think it's not as good when you're. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's still, I still think it's a it's a much better it's a better film than novel is. I think. Okay. I think the novel is a little bit pulpy and not as exciting. And I think the film actually does take that to a place where it 
David Fincher is very good at elevating source material. I think mm. he probably made Gone Girl a better film than a novel. Bad, um, bad novel, bad film. You don't like either? No. I quite like Gone Girl. As a film or as, as a novel? More as a film. Yeah. I think I like David Fincher's atmosphere, um, sort of dark sensibility. There's some great stuff in it. She's fantastic in it, and there's some excellent Rosamund Pike's really good. Yeah, yeah, and there's some excellent scenes, but I think it's I think it's quite flawed and I'd put that down to the source material. I feel like it's it's a cheat. Right. It's a oh, cheat yeah. of a film. Yeah, it's a lot and bit. a cheat of a book. Um Oh, finally, modern thing, if you want a good T V series, uh and book Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, which mm. we keep mentioning, but the the series and the book are both cracking. The book's a lot better than the series, but that's not to say the series is not very no, good. No, yeah, the book's the best. Read Hilary Mantel's book because the series is both both of her books, good. isn't it? Adapted. Yeah, I think so. Um, but the first two books, yeah. Um, that that'll do for now. Won't that'll it? do for now. Um, Go on forever. Yeah, you can also seek out the hundreds of Shakespeare remakes. Mm, don't waste your time. Ten Things I Hate About You from The Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a particularly exciting play. Uh, don't really remember much about the film. No. Um, there you go. What a time to be alive. I'm looking forward to the film adaptation of this podcast. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, there's not much more to say on that. That's it. I apologise if we've been a bit sort of sleepy and lethargic, as we and said George earlier. George has had breakdowns over his Full of picks. curry. Um, yeah, we'll iron that out for the next episode. Please. <laughs> um, yeah. Or wear a hair shirt or something. Well, I feel like with this, we're well and truly back. <laughs> That's what I'm happy about. I feel we've got the ball rolling again. George is out of his sickness. There's, there's energy in the room again. <laughs> if you could see us, I don't think you'd say that, but <laughs> it's nice to be back and more to come. Um, Send right. in your favourite recommend, not recommendations, adaptations right, this as is, recommendations. This is the professional part. Yeah, you engage with us. We want to engage with the listeners. So send us your favourite book to film, film to book adaptations. Mm. Um, and uh, We'll go watch them or read them. Yeah, we will. Um, All right. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. There they go. (laughs) Those two. Uh, That's the end of the episode, guys. Uh, We're signing out in real time here, in present day. And that was the Speaking Generally podcast, which we're now named. That was the Stephen George podcast that we've strapped the Speaking Generally headline on to. Right, that was your final Stephen George podcast. This is now Speaking Generally. Um, If we keep saying the title, it really brands it hard. Speaking Generally. (laughs) Um, Thank you for joining, and we'll be back with much more. We've we've got kind of a strict uh, recording schedule, I think, Steve, so hopefully it keeps coming thick and fast. Yeah, we'll keep shoving them down your gullet. (laughs) Uh, All right. Bye-bye.